You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. OTAs continue for the Chicago Bears as they celebrate their 100th season by holding the Bears 100 celebration. And after that, I dive into Matt Nagy and how modern NFL coaches influence their teams. It's all coming at you in this episode of Bear With Me. What's up, Bears fans, and welcome back to Bear With Me, a Chicago Bears podcast hosted by yours truly, Robert Schmitz, on this, the Windy City Gridiron Podcasting Network. Now, I gotta tell you, while we're usually a review and preview show where we review the Bears game that just happened and preview the Bears game that's coming up, as I'm sure you know, we're in the dead of the offseason and there are no football games. But that doesn't mean there's nothing to talk about. While there's not a lot, and nobody's gonna try to tell you there's a lot, we have gotten a fair amount of news out of OTAs, and like I mentioned in the opener, the Bears held their Bears 100 celebration recently, and we got a couple of nice little quotes out of that that we can discuss from Ryan Pace, Mark Sadowski, and plenty of other Bears. A lot of quotes that I got secondhand from Twitter, because I'll tell you up front, I wasn't able to go myself, what with being in Dallas and all. And then after that, I do want to talk about the meaning of coaching in the NFL. That means what coaching brings to an NFL team, what we should expect it to do, what deficiencies on an NFL football team can good coaching shore up, and all the works about that. Coaching's a really important part of the NFL culture, as can be seen with the Patriots and Bill Belichick, but I don't want to spoil the content that I got for you. Let's dive into the first stuff first and talk about OTAs. So I've got three things to talk about in this section. Number one, Adam Shaheen seems to be doing pretty well. Number two, Emmanuel Hall got injured, and that's not a great thing. And number three, I'm going to talk a little bit about some comments that Jordan Howard made a couple of days ago that ground my gears a touch. But let's start with Shaheen. From everything that I've heard so far from early reports coming out about Bears OTAs, it sounds like Riley Ridley as well as Adam Shaheen are lighting it up. Now, I think that's great news for the Bears because anybody who's listened to this show consistently knows that while I think Trey Burton did a good job being the first Nagy U tight end, filling that role adequately, I didn't think he was particularly special. And the Bears could certainly use a little bit more, let's say, pop at the position. Adam Shaheen has always had the tool set, predominantly because he's as big as he is, and he's got straight line speed that's pretty legitimate. He can make contested catches in the end zone, which has been proven time and time again because the red zone is kind of all he's done so far. But his big problem has, of course, been that he can't stay healthy to save his life. I can't tell you guys how many times I've seen, and I know you've seen too, Adam Shaheen come up with a big catch. And it's finally started to look as if he was about to turn it around and have himself a good game only to realize that he wasn't getting up. 
These injuries would take all kinds of forms. One point, I remember he landed and the ball hit him too hard in the gut, knocking the wind out of him. Another time, he landed and got a concussion due to whiplash. I mean, these happen to all kinds of players all the time, but because they kept happening to Shaheen, it started to look like a guy who just couldn't keep himself healthy. Now, I'll tell you what. If he starts to put it together for the Bears, that could be a real positive. He's got much more blocking experience than Trey Burton does, and as I identified in my latest video on Nagy, the Bears offense likes to use that blocking tight end, and certainly it tried to use Deion Sims as much as it could before Sims proved himself completely useless. So I would expect Adam Shaheen and Trey Burton, should both of them be able to take the field at the same time, to actually be able to do some damage if they're playing at their best. Now, while the Bears could use a big step up from Shaheen, and that, that would help the offense a lot, nobody could use a step up from Shaheen more than Adam Shaheen himself. The Bears probably just don't have all that long a leash with him remaining. While they do have two years of control left, let's not forget that Kevin White just walked off the team after three years of spending the entire time on his contract, or at least that's about how it felt, sitting on IR. I don't think the Bears want to entertain the idea that they're going to count on Shaheen, given as he's mostly not played, and then lately when he has played, he's looked like a guy that still needs more work, and I can't blame him. I don't want to come after Shaheen direct. I've always thought he was more of a project he picked that needed time to grow, and he just hasn't gotten that, because there's no way to grow quite like playing in NFL games, and he's always been just a little too hurt to do that sustainably, which has obviously hurt his development. But anyways, the Shaheen's not the only topic of this podcast, and I'll leave you with this. If Shaheen can blow up, that would be huge for the Bears. They could use a superstar tight end, though I doubt Shaheen will ever be one, so the next best thing is two really good tight ends that handle their roles capably. Shaheen's a better blocking-catching hybrid than anybody else we have on the roster, that's for darn sure, so if he could complement Burton by allowing Burton to run a lot of the deeper routes and other more complicated wide receiver-esque routes that he's already running, while Shaheen provides that true safety net that Trubisky seems to to need, I think that'll work really well. After all, Adam Shaheen was the recipient of one of the best catches that Trubisky was able to throw in that Week 15 Packer game, I'm sure you remember the one, on third down, where Trubisky evaded a runner that seemed to be coming direct from his back, rolled out, threw back to Shaheen off of a fadeaway, and Shaheen had motioned into the zone that he needed to be at because, frankly, him and Trubisky get along really, really well. So I hope Shaheen can step up. That would help the Bears out a lot, though I'll tell you up front, I'll believe it when I see it. This guy's been hurt too often for me to truly get on board. I like him as a player, but only if he's healthy, because as I'm sure you know, there's no ability in the NFL quite like availability. But let's move on. So the other big news coming out of OTAs so far is that wide receiver prospect Emmanuel Hall, the guy who was graded as having a second round, potentially third round draft grade that ended up coming to the Bears as a UDFA, he actually has recently gotten surgery for an injury much like what Trey Burton underwent. Sounds like a hernia surgery. Now I gotta tell you, this doesn't really shock me because from everything I understand about his time at Mizzou, he was severely limited by injury. Could have caught for a bazillion yards because he was constantly running by people and he had quarterback Drew Locke delivering him the ball a 
little inconsistently, but better than plenty of quarterbacks, but it was ultimately his own body that was doing him in on a fairly regular basis. Now that's too bad to hear in my opinion, because I've always believed that one of the cruelest things about the NFL, and frankly professional sports in general, is that there are some people who are able to do absolutely incredible things. They are big, tall guys who can run outstandingly fast or move unbelievably quickly, but their own bodies do them in because they can't handle it. A decent example is RG3. He got ACL injuries like it was his job. I'm a Baylor Bear. I love him, so I say this out of admiration, but his body, his knees were never able to handle what he was physically able to do. And according to an article I read about Hall around draft time, it sounded as if, according to his coaches and his teammates, and frankly even him himself, that every single time he started to feel like he was getting back to 100%, finally, he would say, that he would start to get injured again, that he would feel something twinging, that something wouldn't feel right, that his hamstring would start acting up. And that gives me the impression that Hall may be one of the many people to join the group of NFL players that could have been but never were and it's not due to his own faults as a person it's just that his body may not be able to handle the blazing speed that his legs are able to produce his own muscles may not be able to hang on for the ride now that bums me out but it doesn't surprise me these are the kinds of reasons that guys go undrafted after all because most of these nfl coaches and gms they know their stuff so if he does end up hurt i can't say that'll shock me it'll bum me out a little bit but i think the bears have been and will remain loaded at the wide receiver position with or without hall now there's always the chance that this injury is a little overblown the Bears could be preparing Hall to put him on IR, which would give him the NFL's equivalent of a medical redshirt. Now, for those who don't know what I'm talking about, the NFL is very strict about two rules in particular. Number one, you can't have more than 53 men on your active roster. And number two, you always have to get somebody through waivers if you want to put them on their practice squad. That often ends up with guys that are too good to cut because somebody will take them, but also not quite good enough to stick it on your roster, or at least not yet. And that brings up this concept of a medical redshirt in the NFL, where somebody has an injury, sometimes it's fabricated, sometimes it's not, but the team will place him on IR, which makes sure that he stays on the team under contract, but he doesn't take up a roster spot. That could be what the Bears are setting up for with Emmanuel Hall. Who knows? I wouldn't be surprised if his injury is legitimate, but hey, we'll just have to let it all play out. It is only June, after all. And one quick thing I'll hit on, because it's not that big a story, but I did want to comment on it. Jordan Howard had some snarky comments about the Bears' offense, uh, backhanded a little bit, because he was more being complimentary about the Eagles' offense and how well he feels like he's going to be used, that he feels as if he's got a much bigger role in Philly. And I'll tell you what, Bears fans, I wouldn't worry about this at all. I've had some people asking me if this quote-unquote confirms that Nagy's not a very good offensive coach or can't use his players and I'll tell you what Nagy started out training camp last year for the Bears being very adamant that he was going to make Jordan Howard a three down back that he was going to use Jordan Howard as a three down back because it gave him an astounding amount of options from the running back position and on every down as we saw as the year progressed that didn't happen 
And I think that's because Jordan Howard played himself out of the role more than Nagy somehow degraded as an offensive coach. He used everybody else all over the field, after all. Why was it only Howard that played that smash hammer role, and that was about it? I think it's because he played himself out of any other role, and that Philly will figure that out sooner rather than later. After all, let's not forget that even though the Eagles traded for Howard, this perennial thousand-yard rusher, they still took Miles Sanders in the second round. So I think they know what they have in Howard, and that they will end up using him in more of, as Lester would say, a LeGarrette Blunt type role, where he'll take the ball on short-yarded situations that he's been very, very good at, and continued to be very, very good at in 2018, and that Sanders and Smallwood will remain their quote-unquote feature backs. Won't shock me if Sanders gets the bulk of the carries, assuming he's healthy. And that about does it for OTAs so far. What, we're 12 minutes in, we're making decent time and all, but OTAs really don't give us a ton to talk about because they're not padded practices, they're not installing tons of stuff, and they're really not in the season's about to start mode. They're not playing preseason games, they have nobody to perform for, so it's good to hear that these guys are, you know, playing well, like Shaheen and Ridley, but it doesn't really bear any weight. Neither does the Bears 100 celebration, but it's really fun to talk about anyways. So for those who don't know, and if you don't know, I'm a little surprised, I'll be honest. The Bears held this really cool event where they brought in tons of players. Basically every past player except Jay Cutler and Thomas Jones, which seem like interesting stories in and of themselves because it seems as if both were left out so that nobody would really have to deal with them. Cutler was booed every time he came up from everything I've been told by people at the events, so whenever he'd come up in highlight packages, fans would boo, regardless of your opinion on Cutler. I find that a little strange. And then, honestly, it wouldn't surprise me if Jones was left out, not only because he only played for the Bears for three years, but also so that nobody around the Bears organization would have to answer any questions about how they regret trading Jones or anything that seems pretty obvious now, but obviously stokes a lot of emotions talking about it. Now, I did hear some pretty cool quotes. One, for instance, was that the scouting director for Chicago, the current scouting director of player personnel, said that he, quote, always had haha graded higher than Amos, end quote, when asked about the two. Now, this can't be that surprising, as the guy he said he graded better is the guy on the Bears, and that the guy they let go is now a Green Bay Packer. But even so, I find it interesting to think about. I mean, what if? It kind of wouldn't surprise me if they had Ha Ha Clinton Dix graded a little bit better, because Adrian Amos didn't really do a lot. I love him as a player, at least in his strong safety role, but I'm not about to come call this guy a crazy playmaker. I find him a nice glue guy. Never going to be better than, say, the seventh best guy on your defense. Maybe he'll be the fourth best guy on your defense. But while he's really good in run support and he can cover at a decent level, he's not a playmaker, he's not a ball hawk, and he doesn't possess outstanding instincts when it comes to attacking that football. Haha ha does. That's what he's best at, without a doubt. And so given that Ryan Pace has always been an aggressive man in terms of just, well, the way he approaches everything, it wouldn't surprise me if his scouting staff is equally aggressive and favors players that are aggressive. Haha ha is an aggressive player. Even though he's not a phenomenal tackler, he's an aggressive player with the ball in the air. So if they do have them personally graded better than Adrian Amos, that's not going to shock me. Either way, it's an interesting thing to think about. 
Another couple of nuggets that I got out of the conference, or at least secondhand, because again, I wasn't able to be there, which was too bad, but I will be able to go to training camp, so you'll get personal coverage from me there. Uh, Pace downplayed his story about uh, trading for Mac. He apparently went home at the end of the day, and his wife asked him, hey, honey, what did you do? How was your day today? And he, you know, casually said, oh, we, we got Cleo Mac today, and... It's funny because Bears fans everywhere said the same thing. We got Khalil Mack today! Just a lot louder and, you know, more full of energy. Kind of crazy to think about that life of a GM, you know? Going home and talking to your wife about the crazy things that you did for your football team that millions of people all over the country care deep, deep, deeply about. But it's just your job. It's the way you make a living. I don't know. Interesting to think about. Certainly a bit of a peek behind the curtain. I found it really, really fun to think about. A couple of other things that I got for you, because I really don't have a ton of coverage on this. It was just a fan conference. But one of the interesting stories that I did hear came from the director of college scouting, Mark Sadowski, who I believe was on one of the panels at the conference. And he talked about Pace's interview with David Montgomery, the Bears' new third-round running back. Apparently, Pace went into that interview, had the interview with Montgomery, came out, and one of the first things he asked Sadowski was, is this guy going to be there for us? And as we know, he traded up to get him. I find that interesting because it's just another example of the way that Ryan Pace, our overwhelmingly aggressive GM, absurdly aggressive at that, is a very go-get-his-guys kind of person. He identifies players that he wants. Trubisky, by all accounts, was one of them. Eddie Jackson seems to have been another. And David Montgomery is the latest that he says, I want that guy. We're going to get that guy specifically. And it seems to work out pretty well for him because he's certainly got a sterling record in those middle rounds, which are admittedly tough to draft in. And hey, if Trubisky can get a little bit better, he can start to take that franchise quarterback mantle that'll make Ryan Pace look exceptionally good at drafting. He already looks outstanding, especially being able to pick up, a, you know, potentially the best safety in the NFL in just the fourth round. But if he can hit on Trubisky officially, that'll be a real feather in his cap. It'll be interesting over the years to see whether Pace's drafting ever falls back down to average. He is way, way above average in terms of everything from games played by his current draft picks to awards garnered by their draft picks to average value, according to things like Pro Football Reference. Whatever statistic you want to try to use to generate a draft normalized uh, score for each GM across the NFL, Pace's middle rounds are better than some team's first round picks and that's not an exaggeration because players like Jordan Howard, Jackson, uh, Bilal Nichols, Tariq Cohen have been excellent producers for the Bears and not every first round pick hits as we've seen with guys like Leonard Floyd. But anyways, I'm going to use Floyd to segue into a couple of the people that Pagano singled out as guys who are having good off seasons, namely Mac, Hicks, Floyd, and Roy Robertson Harris. I found that interesting that not only was Floyd on there, and Mac, of course, who Pace has said at multiple points that he is so excited that he traded for Khalil Mack. Apparently, Mack is a phenomenal worker, comes in, works harder than just about anybody else, and 
sets that standard, that winning standard that you want somebody to set in the locker room that says, I know I'm one of the best and most talented edge rushers in the NFL, but this is how hard I work. Apparently, that has just been phenomenal for the defense and all the younger players. But it was interesting that Pagano specifically called out Roy Robertson-Harris. I find that really interesting because Roy Robertson-Harris's positioning is going to mean a lot for whether the Bears are, you know, a little short on the defensive line versus a little bit short at outside linebacker. I never really thought that Robertson-Harris fit that outside linebacker position that they tried him out at two years ago, and I thought he played much better as an inside-outside defensive line depth piece, that he got to play defensive end, had a little bit of defensive tackle work, but he was a rotational player on that defensive line. I thought it fit him really well, because not a lot of defensive linemen have the pass rushing arsenal that somebody who's played outside linebacker for any given amount of time has. It was clear to see that his pass rush moves were better than plenty of interior defensive linemen, and that took a couple of guards as lunch money. I think he fits better there, because he can be an above-average pass rushing defensive lineman a lot easier than he can be an above-average pass rushing outside linebacker, but hey, we'll see where Pagano uses him. I think his placement on this defense, whether outside linebacker or defensive line, will be a very interesting story to follow and will give us a lot of clues as to what they think of guys like Matthew Betts and Aaron Lynch headed into this 2019 season. Rest assured, Pagano's going to use him where he thinks he will be most effective. So what that looks like, I honestly can't wait to see. Either way, he's an ascending player, and I like that idea that we've got an ascending edge rusher, or at least pass rusher, in a league where you need to be able to rush the passer. Any help we can give Mac is good help indeed. But let's move on to the coaching segment of this podcast. Over the last two weeks, I've done quite a bit of work on Bears head coach Matt Nagy. Two weeks ago, I did a study on what makes his plays so creative and how it is that he goes about scheming people open and what makes him special as a play creator. And then last week, I released a video last Friday, so pretty recently, all things told, about how Matt Nagy's play-calling tempo and the way that he chains plays together, called sequencing, is so special and what makes it so good by highlighting his best drive of the year, in my opinion, the Week 2 drive against Seattle that sealed the game from the third to the early fourth quarter. Now, all that work gave me a lot of insight into who Matt Nagy is and why it is that he makes the Bears so dangerous, so I wanted to talk a little bit about coaching at this point and talk about how it relates to Fangio, Pagano, and even a little bit of Belichick, just because Belichick's such a good example of coaching. And in fact, I'll actually start there. So this may not be debatable in your eyes, but I think that Bill Belichick is the best coach ever, and a lot of it has to do with championships as well as something I'll discuss in a second. So Belichick's resume is pretty loaded, and I don't want to go too deep into it. This is a Bears podcast after all, but he won two Super Bowls as a defensive coordinator, both the Giants, before winning six with the Patriots. And he arguably has the greatest quarterback ever while doing it. But in my opinion, and this is a different conversation 
all together. Tom Brady is undoubtedly the best quarterback ever, but I don't think you can walk away from the fact that Bill Belichick is a huge reason for who he is as a player and in the system that he's in. A lot of the winning is accredited to Bill, and most of it is because of the masterwork that he continues to do on a year-to-year basis with the Patriots defense. That's the subject of this conversation, is the effect that a coach can have on a team. I don't think anybody walks into the NFL season on a year-to-year basis saying that Patriots defense, they're going to be really, really good. And that's because most of the time, they don't have a ton of talent sitting around their roster's hallowed halls. They don't have a ton of talent in that locker room, but Bill Belichick takes a defense that always starts out bad and ends up making them really, really good. Let's take 2017 just as a case study. So in 2017, the Patriots started out their season getting blown out 42-27 to by the Chiefs. That was the Kareem Hunt come out to party game. They then gave up over the next three weeks 20 points, 33 points, and 33 points. So that's four games, all at least 20 points scored against, three of those over 30. Over 30 is really, really bad in the NFL, and I think we all know that, especially as Bears fans. But then, over the next eight games, the worst they gave up was 17 points, and they did that twice. The next time they gave up 30 points was to the Chiefs, and then in the Eagles in the Super Bowl when Foles played the game of his life. Outside of that, they were great. They were a really, really good defense. So then fast forward to 2018, and you see the same story kind of repeat itself. After a pretty good defensive performance in Game 1, they then gave up 31 points to the Jaguars and 26 to the Lions in Week 2 and 3. Neither were great. Both were losses. But then, despite the fact that the Patriots' defense had done so poorly at the start of the season, and despite the fact that the Patriots had the greatest quarterback of all time under center in this most recent Super Bowl victory, it was the defense that was the story. Bill Belichick is a master coach, unbelievably good at bringing his players up, and he's consistently able to make great stuff, make chicken salad, so to speak, out of not amazingly good players on defense. So that's the impact that a coach can have. And from what I've seen of Nagy, I think he can do a lot of the same things. Now, offense isn't as easy. In my opinion, defense is more of a team game and offense is more of a singular, like, yes, team teamsmanship, team chemistry, the ability to perform together. That is critical, especially when it comes to holding blocks and making sure that your teammates are able to get running lanes or knowing where your receiver is running so that you can throw them the ball but you also need a whole lot of skill to be able to have success on offense and that's why guys like Tyreek Hill are so good at it and yes I'm aware that Tyreek Hill's done some bad stuff but he's still a case study in how to be a skilled receiver in the modern day run real fast. You'll get yourself open. But let's make sure that we don't get too far off base here. We are talking about Matt Nagy and how he is similar in a sense to Bill Belichick. Now, I want to make this clear because now that I think about it, I I think I might be misrepresenting things. I'm not about to try and tell you that Matt Nagy is going to bring a Bill Belichickian effect to this Bears offense immediately. 
What I am going to tell you is that he is a way better offensive coach than anybody we've yet seen. He helps the offense out in that same way that Bill Belichick is able to infuse power into his defenses. A lot of it comes through the way that Nagy designs and runs his plays. He designs his plays to make sure that he tailors his offense to what his offensive players can do. Let's use Jordan Howard as an example. If he wants Howard to take a screen pass, which admittedly happens pretty rarely, in the Cardinals game week three, he stuck Howard on the end of the offensive line so that Howard didn't have to run that common slip route. He'd just already be there. On the other hand, Tariq Cohen or Taylor Gabriel, he's going to find ways to try to creatively get them the ball. In one play in week two, my favorite drive, he motioned Gabriel from left to right on what looked like it was going to be Howard running an outside zone run to the right before having Gabriel sprint back to his left, take the handoff, get around Burton's butt, and turn up field for big time yardage. By that I mean 10 running yards. But that's the point. Nagy wants to get these skilled, fast guys like Tariq Cohen, Taylor Gabriel, Anthony Miller, plenty of these very skilled athletes, David Montgomery's going to join that as his Cordero Patterson, into wide open space, and he's smart about how he wants to do it. You can see that with plays like what we ran in Week 17 with Trey Burton. That's a play that I highlighted on Twitter a little while back. You haven't seen it in any of my recent work. He runs a triple fake. He has a fake screen to the left, which then uh, turns into a fake throw over to the right-hand side of the field before that has drawn everybody onto the boundaries of each side of the field. So almost the entire defense is either caught up in the fake screen on the left, caught up in the fake routes on the right, and they've just forgotten about Trey Burton, who is now, instead of pretending to block or throwing a chip block, which he does at the start of the play, he just turns around. The dude is wide open to catch the ball, turn, and run. That's what Nagy does. That's what makes him so good. He helps his offense get big plays by designing plays in some cases that allow somebody like Gabriel to get into open space and threaten for huge yardage, maybe a touchdown. And in other cases, plays that are so crafty that they will get a first down because they're going to work. When you can have that kind of confidence in your offensive coach, it brings these offensive players into a place where all they can do is buy in to what that coach is selling. And that's something that I think that Nagy is able to bring. He's able to get his players energized. He's able to get them believing that what they're doing is going to work. He's able to get all the little chemistry-related things on his offense going such that I have a really good feeling that in this 2019 season, we're going to see some points. Assuming, of course, that everybody plays at a level similar, if not a little better, to what they did last year. This obviously doesn't happen without Trubisky playing well, and that's part of why I think Nagy is not treating him like Sean McVay does with Jared Goff. Jared Goff was kind of babied such that McVay could continue to score all the points that he was able to during the regular season. He'd make Goff's checks for him. Goff never had to do anything other than stand back and throw the football where coach told him to, and while he never got good enough to play in games like the ones that Fangio threw at him with the Bears or the ones that Belichick... <laughs> again back to him, threw at him in the Super Bowl, he ended up winning a whole lot of games, McVay and Goff. Nagy, if you look at the way this last year went, did not do that with Trubisky. These last four games 
starting with the Rams and all the way through the playoff game, it was on Trubisky to do a ton of work. The first half of that Philly game was really the only exception where he tried to take the ball out of Trubisky's hands and Philly ate Nagy alive. I really believe Nagy regrets that. To touch on that really quickly, I believe that Matt Nagy started that game with the intention to try to make sure that uh, Trubisky didn't go out and rams himself, that he didn't throw a ton of interceptions, embarrass himself on a national stage again, because if you think about it, all of Trubisky's worst games were in primetime when everybody was watching him, and he just didn't want to make sure that his, he wanted to make certain that his quarterback didn't crumble on the national stage and break his mental state. Unfortunately, Philly was keying on this. They waited on it. They took it from him. They were ready. They should have had two interceptions. Thankfully, they came away with none, and that was huge for our offense because it helped us kind of stabilize and get something going in that second half. I still believe Nagy regrets it to this day. If you want my opinion, I'm just a fan. I don't live in this guy's head, but I do think that Nagy massively regrets it. He went away. He stopped being you, in his own words, and he started being himself again in that second half. The Bears obviously started to get some mojo going on offense, scored a touchdown, got in place for what could have, should have been a game-winning field goal, but now we're getting away from the topic a little bit. Ultimately, I look at the way that Nagy runs the offense and runs the team as a whole, and I think he's got the right idea. I think he's a smart offensive play designer and play caller, and that he uses his brain well while keeping the players engaged and making sure that their assignments aren't so complicated that if, say, the second tight end blows his blocking assignment, the whole play goes kaput. He loves to design plays that only involve about five or six offensive players because then not only do you have a whole lot of trickery you can do with the other group of players that aren't going to end up doing anything, but you also kind of give them a break because as much as we fans love to think that these football players should just go out and run their absolute hardest all the time, in a lot of cases that's not wholly realistic. These guys need a breather on occasion just like anybody else in their position would it's why Nagy's offense and a lot of offenses like it love to minimize the responsibility it's because then the offensive line has to stand up sell their block and stop they can be done uh, should the play call for that on, say, a kickout screen or something. It gives the offensive line that little bit of break without literally calling a timeout or taking an absurdly long time. Allows the offense to keep tempo while continuing to do exactly what you want to do and get a break during the process. I don't know. It's great stuff. I could go on and on and on about Nagy. I probably will because we're getting late in this show and I have to tie a bow on it eventually. But I'll end by answering three questions that were asked to me by the username Nutcracker on Windy City Gridiron. He asked, what does a scripted drive mean and how does it differ from unscripted drives? Also, why is the only the first drive commonly scripted? Why not subsequent drives? And third, if Trubisky thrives in the scripted drives, does that mean that he's not mature enough to lead and execute on unscripted drives? So let me dive into this a little bit because it's one of the things that I know comes up with Nagy a lot is the concept of, well, why not just script the whole game? Let me go into it a little bit. So, 
In any offense, most teams want to start out the game with a script. The whole purpose of this is a lot of things, but the gist comes out as such. The Bears, in this case, don't know how a defense is going to try to defend them. They don't really know. They might have some ideas. If they've got a great corner, they might think that they're going to attack Allen Robinson, try to shut him off, make Trubisky go somewhere else. They might think that they have to put the ball in Trubisky's hands and have him assault a secondary because they're going to try to take away Howard and the running game. We saw that a couple of times, but while they may have a guess, they don't know what the other team is going to do until they line up on that Sunday morning, afternoon, or evening and do it. So the Bears, like any good offensive team, are going to practice a group of plays that they're going to try to use to set the tone regardless of how a defense tries to attack them. This gives Nagy a lot of things. Namely, the ability to set that tone on offense for his players where they know what plays they're going to do, they're comfortable with those plays, and Nagy and his offensive staff, like Helfrich up in the booth, are able to watch the defense, see what they're trying to do to attack Trubisky and the Bears offense, and make adjustments from there. Now, of course, you can't do this forever because any NFL defense worth their salt is going to have a coach that eventually adjusts the defensive package, assuming the offense has some success. As we saw, Nagy is a phenomenal play scripter, designer, and caller. And when he gets that time to tinker with a drive and create that script, you can clearly see that his offense understands it, they execute the plan well, and it worked a lot. For the first four or five weeks of the season, at minimum, the Bears scored on every single first drive of the game. That's huge. Great tone setter. But it's also a testament to how well Nagy's offense works when the team understands what they're doing. Because in this case, Nagy was able to install that 101 level that he always talks about, that this year is 202. But in that scripted drive each week to start the game, you better believe that is what Nagy's offense was supposed to look like all the way through because they had that extra time to practice it. They had that extra time to understand what those plays would look like. They knew what they were going to be going into the game. So that meant that they had a little bit more understanding as to what they were trying to do and when they were trying to do it. Great insight into what Nagy's 202 looks like. But it worked, and that was the great part. So because it worked, you could count on the defense to make adjustments. So that means you can't create a 50-play script, because if you do, the defense is going to adjust. And let's say that you scored on play 12 uh, or something. Maybe you had two series, and the first one scored a touchdown. Second one got you a field goal, took you 12 plays. Uh, you come up with play 13, and the defense has totally shifted. Well... Your script is done. It's hosed. Out the door. Because it doesn't matter anymore. What you thought you were going to be attacking, that's changed. Variables are different. You have to adjust like any good NFL coach. And so with that in mind, you can't create a long script because you're going to waste a lot of effort and you only have a week to practice, prepare, and rehearse. That's the whole reason you have these long, in-depth playbooks. You have to be ready for anything so that despite whatever the defense does, heck, if you're playing the Patriots and they bring in Rob Gronkowski, you better be ready for that. What does that mean for your offense? I don't know. That's up for the coach to decide and, you know, how the Patriots in this case would deploy Gronkowski. But 
That's the point. That's what these offenses do. You can't script everything because the defense is going to change the variables. And when they do, you have to change your offense to counter their counter. That's what makes football so interesting to me. Not only is it some of the greatest athletes in the world, but it's also an incredible chess match between amazing coaches that just go back and forth, adjusting this, changing that, and then you end up with these 80-yard plays that quote-unquote look so easy, they aren't. A lot of them are very, very calculated. I don't know. If you want a good example, think about how often the Bears were able to get people on the stop-and-go route, the one where the uh, wide receiver is going to run out, he's going to turn back as if he's running a curl route, and then he's just going to book it uh, and run as fast as he can once the defender bites. Because the Bears... And they did this exceptionally well in Philly on that huge Allen Robinson throw that basically got the Bears in field goal range. You'll remember that the Bears had thrown short effectively all game long. So that meant that the Eagles, they were waiting on that curl. They knew it was coming, or at least they thought they did. And that's the whole point of the stop and go route. When you think that you have the other defense thinking they know what's going on, you change it. You do something else. You start it out as if they are going to get what they want, and then you take it away from them. That's the point of that route. It's part of one thing that Nagy does really well. He wants to set his offense up as if it's doing the same thing over and over and over, maybe even 60% of the time, but it's that other 40 that you just can't be sure he's not going to do it, and that keeps people on their toes. It makes sure that they give up those same gains over and over and over, like the curl routes that were so successful, the curl routes, the out routes, all that sideline stuff that Trubisky was able to complete over the middle and especially out by the borders for about 8 to 15 yards consistently because they had to be aware that if they overcommitted to that route, yeah, they might come up with an interception. They also might give up a touchdown down the sidelines. And that's the point. So now let's answer that third part because I tend to think we've covered pretty well the difference between a scripted drive and why they exist and an unscripted drive and why you have to get away from that script eventually. Let's get on to Trubisky. And we'll cover this pretty quickly because this is about coaching. It's not about Trubisky. But the long and short is, I think that Trubisky is a very hard worker. He's good at preparing. That's something that Larry Fedora told me on Hallis Hall Brawl when Austin Fugelstad and I got to interview him. It was great. And he just mentioned, he glowed about how hard a worker Trubisky is, how important that is on third down and all other situations of the game. And I look at the way that I hear that and I look at the way he performed in those first uh, drives of each game. And I think that Trubisky is exceptionally good when he's comfortable. When he's not comfortable, I think a lot of things break down. And when you think about him in that lens, it makes a lot of sense. Like we've talked about before, he wasn't very good throwing into the end zone. I don't think anybody's naturally comfortable going for the kill. And Trubisky certainly looked like that. But on third down, which Fedora mentioned was all about preparation, he would consistently be comfortable. He'd make his throws. He converted third downs. And I do mean this at a legitimately elite level. It was something else. So then you look and you think to yourself, okay, so why was Trubisky the way he was throughout the season? And I think it's because he just didn't have that incredible grasp of the offense that we might want him to have. And 
while that's a little too bad over 2018, in 2019, I expect him to know much more what's going on. I expect much better numbers. I expect much better performance in general because that comfort level difference between his first drive of the game and his third quarter drive of the game, so to speak, it shouldn't be near as jarring as it was in week one, two, three, and then obviously week four was basically just a giant blue and orange party of touchdowns against Tampa Bay. But As Trubisky gets more comfortable, as he gains experience, I think he's going to start looking like that first quarter drive all the time, which is not invincible. Some of Nagy's best plays come out in that first quarter drive consistently, and they baffle defenses. So a lot of this is going to be about whether Nagy is able to sustain his high-level play calling that he'll sort of pull out sometimes. Those first period or those first drives of the game, those tone setters, that drive in week two against Seattle, he's had some firecracking drives, some phenomenal play calls. And as he stabilizes, if Trubisky can also take that next step, get that little bit more comfortable, make that footwork consistent, we should see Nagy's offense take flight. And it'll be an awesome thing to see. I can't wait. I I really cannot wait for the season to start. I'm so jazzed up because between Nagy and Trubisky, this litany of phenomenal receivers, I'm super excited about David Montgomery running the inside zone because he's way better on a down-to-down basis than Jordan Howard is at what Nagy wants to do, and that has me really excited. Hopefully we can have a couple more four, five, ten-yard gains than Howard's like one-yard, two-yard, or maybe six-yard if he really got rolling but I'm just jazzed up about this Bears team we look ready to roll and if we don't you should be upset because the table is set for a huge season this year there is no ifs ands or buts about it it should be a huge season Super Bowl guaranteed not necessarily I mean it could happen don't get me wrong I hope it does but nothing's guaranteed in the playoffs. Experience really does matter in these one-game series. And the best team should win in a series of, say, seven. But in a series of one, anything can happen. I think the Bears beat the Eagles a lot more times. The Bears would win game two, let's say. But week one, uh, that first game of the playoffs, obviously, we couldn't pull it up. And I think experience has more to do with it than a lot of fans want to accept. But... Should they be able to channel the experience that Super Bowl playing uh, Taylor Gabriel has that a lot of these other players that have been deep in the playoffs like Cordero Patterson, who just won a Super Bowl, have? I think the Bears really might have something special brewing in Chicago this year, and I cannot wait to see it. Anyways, that's my show. I went way over what I expected to, and I'm okay with that. I hope you are too. It's a <laughs> it's a whole lot of listening to my voice, but I hope you're enjoying it. I know I'm enjoying making it. If you like what I've got to say, feel free to check me out on Twitter at Robert K. Schmitz. That's where I post a whole lot of thoughts when there's something to give thoughts on. But honestly, right now, there's not a lot. So my Twitter is, it's a little slow. I mean, I really don't have much to say. But as I start to go through what I'm about to do, which is starting to build video packages on Bilal Nichols, uh, Alan Robinson, and others, I am really excited uh, to show y'all who they are as players and you'll probably see that leak out on Twitter a little bit. But yeah, outside of that, have a great rest of your week, everybody. Bear down, and thanks so much for bearing with me.